0: Hey, everybody, welcome to Literary Disco on Lithub Radio, episode 157 Pale Fire. On today's episode, we discuss Vladimir Nabokov's 1962 novel Pale Fire. Less popular than his book Lolita, Pale Fire is nonetheless complicated, maintains a rabid fan base, and has received a wide variety of interpretations. This is Literary Disco, the last book club you'll ever need. We are Todd, Julia, and Ryder, three old friends who love to read, debate, and sometimes even agree. I am actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong. Joining me, as always, are novelist and critic Todd Goldberg and essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel. Hey, guys.
1: Hey!
2: Welcome. Hey, <laughs> it's an exciting time here on Literary Disco um, because as we're recording this episode, uh, I'm also watching the National Book Awards <laughs> to see if my friend uh, Leila Lalami wins the National Book Awards. So, if while we're talking, I begin to scream, it's because my friend has won the National Book Award.
0: So, how are you trying? Are they televised? Like, I don't know the National Book Award what, what, so, yeah. is the ceremony how streaming live.
2: live? They 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 screen it live on Facebook and on their website, and I guess maybe presumably on um, YouTube or something. I'm watching it on Facebook right now. And according to the number of eyes watching it, um, are you ready? Yeah, five hundred and sixty. No, <laughs> <Wow>. huge. <laughs> <laughs>
0: that's like uh, an average download session of our episode. of our, One of our no, episodes, that's you know, not, Way that's less. Like,
2: it's like one. Yeah, we do more one twentieth.
0: <laughs> that's a little sad, it's like, actually. It's,
2: like, it's very small, comparatively.
0: So wait a minute. Where do the National Book Awards like occur?
2: Uh, they give them out in uh, New York. Um, where the National Book Foundation is based. Uh, National Book Foundation, the executive director is a wonderful woman named Lisa Lucas. Um, she always comes out to the LA Times Festival of Books and is on a panel. So if you live in Southern California and you're used to going out to uh, LatFob uh, to see me and writer, um, next time I'll also see Lisa Lucas. She's, a, she's really a huge champion of uh, the arts, and they put on an amazing book award show. Subsequent to her becoming the executive director, they have started... Airing it, it used to show up on like PBS two months after <laughs> the event. Steve Martin would host it, and it would just show up, and like it seemed like it was always in the basement of the Waldorf or something. I don't know where that it's going on now, but it looks pretty, and people are in black tie, and there's a poet with weird hair talking now about, I presume, books of poetry, something like that. Um, but this is the second time that I've been watching the National Book Awards while doing something else. When a friend of mine has been up for it. Last time I was watching it while I was hosting a movie screening at UCR and my friend Robin Benway won uh, the National Book Award for her amazing, the most amazing, most heartbreaking, I've never cried so hard in a book written by a friend of mine's book, Far From, uh, Far From the Tree, uh, which won for the best YA novel. Oh, God, I love that book. Anyway, she won that year in 2018. Or 2017, rather, and I burst into tears at UCR. It was embarrassing.
1: That sounds nice.
2: Yes. So if I burst into tears here now, I'll just be like, oh, it's like when Todd and Ryder read that poem about being men. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Todd, did I ever tell you about my association with the Edgar Awards? No. Yeah. I, I, I'm just realizing while I listen to you talk, I'd never, I probably never told you about this, but when I lived in New York, uh, my girlfriend at the time was a, she was a writer. And so as a day job, she became like uh, the right-hand woman to the woman who ran to Marjorie Edgar Flats. Awards. Is that her name? <laughs> yes. I can't remember her name. This is, I was, you know, this is, so yeah. She's like, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm assuming it's the same person. Yeah, this it was, is. she's done it for years. Uh, yeah. And uh, yeah, so my girlfriend would sit in an office with Marjorie, and it was it's like exactly the office you would imagine—like just all books <laughs> stacked everywhere <laughs> in some tiny little closet office in New York. And um, yeah, uh, Brooke would sit. It was only the two of them in this in this room, and like they were the entire organization that presented the Edgar Awards, you know, because all the, everybody that like votes and determines, right. and you know, all the authors and stuff are scattered throughout the country so the edgar awards was just literally the two of them in this room and then sure enough like it came time for the actual awards and like i had to get dressed up and help them like help them organize the whole event like hand out the pamphlets and and i had never heard of them before you know i was like 21 years old or whatever living in new york and it was like that was one of my first forays into the literary world oh wow was was helping helping hand out pamphlets and you know find help people find their tables at the edgar awards um, but I remember being like, wow, this is really cool. This is like and it introduced me to a couple authors that I still read, you know, because I, I met them and like right. saw them give
2: well get awards. That's and why you like, have oh, read um, that book we were talking about before the show. So before the show started, uh, Ryder and I were talking about the book The Bottoms by Joe Lansdale, and he didn't have any idea why he had it. And it's because it won the Edgar Award when you were still dating Brooke.
1: Wow. Okay. There you
0: go. <laughs> so I probably met him at the probably met like, him with I'll the buy thing. your book and then it sat on my shelf until for seventeen right years. Now, as well about, as a young dashing
1: Todd Goldberg, I can only assume.
2: No, my books have never been up for the Edgar Award. I got uh I was up mm-hmm. for the Hammett, which is like the Golden Globe to the Academy Award. Uh but not the Edgar yet. And the LA Times book prize, of course, but not uh, not the Edgar. The Edgar, like if I get if I were up for the Edgar, you guys would know because you I'd tattoo it on my chest right under Thug Life. <laughs> <laughs> what is the? I don't even remember.
0: Like, why are the Edgar's a big deal? Because is it other authors that nominate you? Well, just like
2: that? every major book award, it's voted on by authors. So the National Book Award, for yeah. instance, it's a panel of authors and critics that uh, that vote on it. The Edgar Awards is a panel of authors that vote on it. And the Edgar Awards are the preeminent awards for the mystery, crime, and thriller genre. So they have best novel, best first novel, best paperback original, best cozy. Um, they have the Mary Higgins Clark Award. Um, they have you know they they also give out Edgars for crime television uh, and crime film for the screenwriters specifically. Um, so it's a it's it's the preeminent award given to a uh, a crime writer. So uh, to be up for that is uh, is a big deal. My brother has, uh, did my brother win one? He, I think my brother won one. And then he's been on it a couple times, um, for TV shows. He, um, I think he won it for an episode of, uh, Ellard queen in the early two thousands, um, which was a show that was on A&E that Timothy Hutton started. Um, that was an adaptation of the popular uh, book series. Um, but yeah, I mean it's it's the it's the big literary award for uh, for crime writers. It's a it's very prestigious, um, and you know you get a little thing on your book, a little sticker, and all that. So I mean, you, you know, we're right about in the time of the the big book award season. The National Book Awards are now, um, and then they start you know the, they start rolling out the Pulitzers will come, and then the Edgar's, and then the L. A. Times Book Prizes. All of them they come you know one after the other in the next four or five months.
1: All right, so a lot of screaming with joy and frustration in your house then.
2: Well, I didn't have a book out this year, but in normal years, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, in normal years. <laughs> but we read well, a great com- book that did not I win was, the. Editor. This
0: conversation actually segues well to Pale Fire because yes, yeah. it it's very you know Pale Fire is obviously a uh, very literary focus. Literary yes. Mm-hmm. Focus. So let me try and uh, get through (laughs) how to describe Pale Fire.
2: Julie and I are going to step out and then you let us know when you can. I'll be back in half an hour.
0: (laughs) So, Pale Fire is a novel presented as the first edition of a 999 line poem written by the fictional John Shade. And Shade's poem is introduced with a foreword and then followed by extensive commentary written by his neighbor and fellow professor, Charles Kinboat. And the book is operated on a lot of different levels. So there's the the, the poem itself, uh, which is drawn from Shade's life and includes the story of his daughter's suicide, and then Kinboat's commentary uh, which follows the poem and begins to digress into some pretty strange directions. Um, in one thread, we get the story of Kinboat's friendship with Shade before Shade died on the same day that he finished this poem. And then we also
2: keep murdered getting actually. the story murdered is or the
0: murdered. Thing. Right. I guess yes. we know that up front. <clears throat> um, and then we keep getting the story of King Charles is it the second? Or King Charles of Zembi Zembla. Which is a uh, a fictional country, and the king had to uh, escape into exile. And um, Kinbo really wanted Shade to write this poem about that king. (laughs) And And so we get a lot lot of a lot of anecdotes about that king's life, Uh, and then we also get the story of uh, through the notes through the commentary. Still, we get the story of greatest. Or Gratis, I'm not sure. Greatest, I'll, I'll say. Who is an assassin that's dispatched from Zembla, who is trying to track down the exiled king mm-hmm. and kill him. Spoiler. Well, oh, hold on. Yeah, to we're, we're going to give away spoilers eventually. We, we let's, can, let's hold We can on.
2: give away spoilers. The book's been out for eighty years.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, but I, but I I really I think we should walk a line a little okay. bit because I, I I think this book is is pretty is is. I think we can can talk about it without giving away the last 20 pages. I mean, it's really only the last 20 pages that it does come together. Let's reveal it, it
1: in out. a weird, awkward moment, because that's what this book would do.
2: Yes, that's correct. <laughs> there would be some other illusion, and I, I would then say, oh, that reminds me, mm, the yeah. reality of Pale Fire.
0: Yeah.
2: So that yeah, let's plan on that.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Great. Let's try and hold off
2: on spoilers
0: and then we'll just let it happen when it happens okay. and we'll, you know, we'll let the audience know that they can stop listening if they really want to read yeah, this. Yeah, it'll be organic. I, but I really, I want to hold off because I, I really want to recommend this to our listeners. Well, there's no I think way there's a can... lot of our listeners who are going to like this yeah. book because it's sort of, it's a very literary disco-y book in a lot of ways. It's, um, yes. at least I, I think so. I mean, cause it really hit the sweet spot for me, but uh, mm-hmm. I'm really curious what you guys well, think Well,
2: there's no way um, that they'll figure it out now. <laughs>
3: This week is brought to you by Hingston and Olson, the publisher of the 2019 short story Advent calendar. Remember Advent calendars? Remember the thrill of opening a new gift every morning and the surprise of never knowing exactly what was inside? Well, now you can rediscover that joy as an adult and with a new literary twist, thanks to Hingston and Olson. They're the makers of the short story Advent calendar a deluxe box set of 25 individually bound short stories that readers open, one by one, on the mornings leading up to Christmas. Each story is sealed, so you won't know what's inside until the morning you open it. When you're done reading, visit shortstoryadventcalendar.com for an exclusive interview with the author of that day's story. These are literary, non-religious short stories for adults, and they come from some of the best writers in North America and beyond. The 2019 edition includes stories from Pulitzer Prize winner Anthony Doerr, Omar El Akkad, Lauren Groff, Jack Pendarvis, Casey Plett, and many more. Don't wait until December 1st. Order your copy today from shortstoryadventcalendar.com and enter the promo code LiteraryDisco at checkout to get 10% off your purchase.
0: All right, who wants to talk about this first?
1: I'll go. Todd's okay. in yeah, a reverie of like. giggles. Um, oh, boy. Wow. Okay, so this book would have been like my favorite book like 20 years ago. So that was like a really nice experience mm, yeah. being like, when's the last time I read some weirdly structured yet exquisitely written book? Um, and yeah, the structure of it. Oh, where to start? Okay, let's just start with the writing. Just let's get that out of the way before we go down the real rabbit holes here. So, I mean, there are, this is something that was like said at Bennington a lot. I'm sure we've said it at the show. There, There's like perfect sentence level writers like Amy Hempel. And then there's like perfect paragraph writers like Philip Lopate and other essayists. And Nabokov is the perfect like word writer. I don't know where the fuck he finds these words from thin air, but they are so amazing and beautiful that it's just like a pleasure to read every individual sentence, even if you currently have no idea what's happening. And who
2: knew he was a poet? Did you guys know he was a poet? I
1: knew that he was kind of all over the place. I've read Lolita and Speak Memory before and loved it. And I mean, not only that, he's multilingual, he's a translator, like this is his his life his world so it didn't surprise me at all that he would just knock into some poetry um okay so this sentence way at the beginning uh line 22 so he's like describing very early on this poet character shade and he's told us he's a poet but then he writes he consulted his rich wristwatch a snowflake settled upon it Crystal to crystal, said Shade. That is like the most beautiful way to, like, first of all, who would ever have that thought? Second of all, he's putting that thought in a character that is correct. You know, he's a poet. This is a man who would have a wristwatch in the snow and then have this poetic thought and speak it so purely. So like that level of writing is just, is just pleasant to experience, especially yeah, he's one of the... this meta- uh, form
0: he's one of those writers that um i love because i am constantly looking up words <laughs> while i'm reading and like i'm not, not not because i have to necessarily but because i want to yeah. because i'm like you know what i mean like I, there's obviously words i don't know but there are words that i Think I kind of know, but because they're so strangely used in this context, I'm like, I gotta look that up. And I enjoy the process. Like every couple of pages, I'm like, What? You use that (laughs) word? What does that even mean? And then I look it up, up and I'm like, It's perfect. perfect."
1: Did you notice that the commentary itself, like, starts doing that at certain points? Yeah. The comment. The
2: comment, and then the also the index, which uh, defines (laughs) things, is not just an index. It's an index written by. by Kinboat. Right. <laughs> which is crazy. There's so many levels to this book. Yeah.
1: What do you think, Todd?
2: Um, um, You know, the the interesting thing for me at this moment is that I am reading 20 graduate theses at oh, the boy. same time that I was reading this. So I've read, I've read about 2,000 pages in the last, <laughs> I don't know, 10 days, two weeks, something like that. And... You know, the the thing about um, MFA students is they always think that they are discovering a new form. Like, I'm going to do something that's never been done before. like, hey, you know what? Nabokov wrote Pale Fire, and I'd never seen anything like it before. And he did it in 1950-whatever. And uh, and then I realized after reading it, oh, so In the Lake of the Woods by Tim O'Brien is Pale Fire. And um, House of Leaves by Mark Danislewski is Pale Fire, and all these other meta fiction. Everything books, David, David Foster. Wallace everything wrote. David Foster Wallace did is Pale Fire. <laughs> is pale
1: Fire. The Internet is Pale. The fire. Internet
2: is Pale Twitter Fire. Twitter like is pale this is fire. like if you could spend, and I'm and I'm sure that there's millions and millions of academic papers on this. You could spend years going back and forth through the cross-references to find out the deeper meanings of every single thing in this book because everything has dual meaning in it. Um, and it's meticulous and it's well-wrought. The fascinating thing for me, though, too, is... I mean, aside from um, the obvious that, you know, Nabokov is a, a gift to the language. You know, there's there's maybe not a finer writer in the history of the world, but save four or five others, right? Wow. So reading him is always an, an education. Um, but he is able to get away with things that in modern literature, even in a book of this form, people wouldn't necessarily get away with, which is hundreds of pages of scene-free narrative. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know, so, mm-hmm. so in the middle of the book, there is the story of King Charles of Zembla and this vast political plot against him. Um, and the match, the, the, actual political and, um, royal machinations of this, uh, basically it's a, a Russian kingdom. Um, and it's just a straight narrative history that that the fake author Kimboat is also um, providing authorial intrusion into, and so you'll be reading something, and you might feel like it's some dry recitation of fact about you know the different lives of people that didn't really exist, and then all of a sudden you realize, oh, actually, I'm being profoundly fucked with by the narrator of this book. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And if you if you skim a single line. You will lose, I don't know, hours of reading uh, of reading time within it. You know, there's there's so much in it. You, it's it's a book you have to read extraordinarily carefully. It's not a pool book. It's a book like you, you have to read it like 25 pages at a time. It's also super dense, but it's also really funny, uh, incredibly dark. It is the one of the best unreliable narrators I've ever read. And um, it hinges on things that I love, which is the dark obsession that you are the focus of someone else's art. <laughs> 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 yeah, I, I, I thought it was remarkable, and I was I was stunned and surprised I hadn't read it yet. We we had it uh, on our shelves, uh, in fact, because um, Wendy, my wife, had read it when all of us were at graduate school um because she read it to write a critical paper on uh, unreliable narrators And so it was also fun for me to see what she'd underlined in here <laughs> mm. and then about midway through i was like there's no fucking way you read this she's like i read yeah, it squeeze me <laughs> 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 so How about i loved you, it writer? i loved it yeah no i
0: i i fucking loved it i think it's it's i mean I I really feel like I am totally the target audience as I I think we all three probably are. Mm -hmm. Um, That's why I think our, our, our listeners probably are too. Like it's, it's really, it's, it's a, it's a book about literature, about reading and about writing and about how we live our lives around reading and writing and telling stories and how we share those stories and how life intrudes into text and text intrudes into life. And it is so funny and weird. Um, I think, you know, like there were definitely times where I think I skimmed and got lost mm-hmm. and got really frustrated. Um, and, you know, I think so I think it, it gets right to the, the the breaking point of like the sort of, um, you know, I think it's called the is it the memetic fallacy where it's like if you want your audience to like. I, I started to be confused and annoyed in a way that I obviously was meant to be annoyed, but like I wanted to be, I wanted to enjoy being annoyed a little bit more. Uh, so there, you know, there were times where it was just like this is going. So basically, it's a little too long at times. It was like mm-hmm. confusing and long, and I was like, uh, "Is this worth it?" Like because I'm still reading just a note to a poem. Do I need to go back to the poem? And you know, it was like I just didn't know how much homework I needed to be doing. For, you know, and how absurdist <laughs> it was getting. And and it does take work. It takes you just kind of have to be, you have to like be on as a reader. You cannot yes. let your guard down. And I let my guard down at times because I was like, uh, I get the conceit. I think it's funny. This is great. I'll just bullshit bullshit, bullshit. And then I realized like I had just gotten through like three footnotes that actually describe shit that's gonna come back. and that I really kind of needed to know, and I right. wasn't keeping track because it's it's dense reading. it's it's dense writing. It's like, um, yeah, it's so layered. Uh, by the end i it really brought me to an amazing place like you know i when i finished it i was like oh my god this is even more it it, it sort of wraps it up in a bow that takes it cuz you know the initial what you realize initially is that there's a sort of insane narrator <laughs> who is writing absolutely crazy yes. this forward and then these comments on a pretty cool good fun to read poem which that, rhymes and which I rhymes. was done
2: to find that I enjoyed
0: <laughs> yeah no I enjoyed it too man you know like I I really it's 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 iambic it's super mm-hmm. like it's, it's super just, just pleasurable to read of it's well written
2: the yeah. the canto about his daughter's suicide so good absolutely heartbreaking absolutely yeah. heartbreaking it
0: reminded me of gabriel you know it was yeah. one of those poems where it was like yeah. oh this is a great use of poetry to like have this you know parent relationship this tragic parent story and its narrative and i was totally on board and um you know i i i at first started reading the poem and then thinking i needed to go back and read the notes and then flip back <laughs> to the poem right. yeah. and I'm, luckily i had a friend who had recommended this book to me and i was texting him uh our, our good friend john flynn york who oh, mentioned yeah, multiple times fan. and i was like john should I be reading the notes while I'm reading the poetry? And he's like, I did, but you probably shouldn't. Maybe read it all the way through. And I'm glad he told me. So I read the poem all the way through, which is much more fun and, and easier. Mm-hmm. And then once you get to the notes, you can kind of go back to the, but you almost don't have to. And yeah. at least I didn't end up going back to uh, Because once you realize that the narrator is insane and that they're, tr- you know, the, the, the joke or the conceit of the book, what you realize when you get to the comments is that this, this scholar, this critic writing about this poem is clearly making the poem about his own issues. And it's clearly deciding to make this poem about something that the poet did not intend, which is just awesome. Like that's the conceit of it, right? That's like the basic idea. And that is so cool. And for me, that was perfectly sustainable for about 100 pages. And then like at about 150 or so, I was like, really? Where's this? Why do I need all these extra stories? Um, And then, damn it, you know, he brought it back. It all kind of came around.
1: That's so interesting. Okay, so I, this is how this is different than a David Foster Wallace experience. Because I did the opposite writer. I was like, I'm going to just read this straight through as if I were reading a novel because I know, that this poem's pretty short and probably the real work is contained in a straight read through of the last two thirds. Mm-hmm. Yep. So I started doing that and then I was like, wait a second, like he's having fun. <laughs> I'm going to have fun. And so then what I did, so I read like probably half the narrative part and then I was like, I'm going to go back to my favorite parts of the poem and like, pretend i was basically like completely buying into the like world that is creating that i am someone who's interested in this poet, right. um and then i yeah. started jumping to the sections like really reading them um as if i were like studying this work of poetry and it was really fun like it was really fun to be like this part's like this part of the contest was boring Kanto 2 was boring let me go to this uh daughter one which I loved and like dig in deeper here so it was really a fun way to read around and I read um I read a little on the internet about this book um and like there's been a lot of like thesis theses written by graduate students about like oh, how uh, it it predicts uh, hyperlinking which I just like love um, thinking about yeah um and
2: oh, hold on breaking news oh uh susan choi's trust exercise winner of the national book award
1: good great work susan
2: not my friend layla so we're now turning this off
1: okay well i'm sure susan is great i'm sure susan is wonderful (laughs) fuckers so yeah anyway (laughs) hyper like the way that we read on the internet or the way that we read through Twitter Mm -hmm. or whatever, like this is, you can read this book a lot of different ways. And that Mm -hmm. is very exciting.
2: Well, I don't think it predicts the internet, but it absolutely reinforces a thing that, and I think this is in fact intentional. It reinforces the thing that Shakespeare did, which is that to understand individual things, you have to understand something that is not in the text a lot mm-hmm. of times. Right. And right. so this book talks a lot about Shakespeare. Pale Fire is taken apparently from Shakespeare, um, though I should probably look that up if it actually is from Shakespeare. It is, <laughs> um, yeah. It is, okay. Yeah. And so there's this sort of circular nature of information that, that goes around. But at the end, of course, it's like the internet in the in the easiest way, where a person views this vast, unknowable thing and believes it's about them. (laughs) Right. Um, Right. But I love the interconnectivity of all of this. And the absurdity is great. And this this critic, or this, you know, essentially biographer, who's writing this commentary of this poem, who wanted it to be essentially about the life of this king of Zembla, who may or may not have some relation to him. Mm. I guess you won't know about that for another 20 minutes. Um, <laughs> yeah, let's hold on. Okay, we'll hold off on that. Um, is that, you know, he also is breaking all the rules of literary criticism by making everything that he is taking from this poem to be a thing that he is interested in and not about the text itself. Which, like, that's the opposite of what you're supposed to do as a critic. You're supposed to evaluate what is on the page, you know, as the thing that's on the page. But he's like, well, I expected this to be about Zembla, and I don't know if his daughter was this or that, but this is what I feel about my inspiration on him. all this other stuff where it's like, oh, Jesus, this is a sociopathic narcissist who's (laughs) (laughs) taken over the the life and letters of of this uh, fantastic poet. Um, But there's also also this weird... uh, undercurrent of academia in this that i really appreciate (laughs) i love an academic novel because academics um as a faux academic though a full professor i should note um as a faux academic (laughs) um like i'm always in these situations where these people talking about the interscene interdepartmental battles about shit and it's so important to them and i just think you have nothing else Happening in your life. <laughs> yeah.
1: Can I just, just jump in? There, that reminds me. So we haven't talked about the forward at all, and it's really good. Right. Um, and it's just basically a bunch of academics like standing around talking about nothing. Um, but <laughs> he's Kimbo is a um he's a vegetarian and. <laughs> Being, Ryder, I'm sure you're dying, but like being married to a vegetarian, like this description of people talking to a vegetarian, it just killed me. Okay. Um, My free and simple demeanor set everybody at ease. (laughs) The usual questions were fired at me about eggnogs and milkshakes being or not being acceptable to one of my persuasions. She said that with him, it was the other way around. He must make a definite effort to partake of a vegetable. Beginning a salad was to him like se- stepping into a sea water on a chilly day, and he always had to brace himself in order to attack the fortress of an apple. <laughs>
2: oh, God. That, that, that line about uh, my simple and kind demeanor, like, that was the point at which I was like, oh, okay, so this is, in fact, a crazy person. <laughs> oh, yeah. right. oh, dude, you didn't get it
0: on the first page? Well, I, thought, I the knew the first soon. page. When he's like he's just just trying to do like a, a very academic introduction and he's describing like what the poem is mm. and who the author is. And it's like the third paragraph. He's 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 talking about his final adjustments, but with this or that corrected draft or his first bare copy. I mean he preserved the date of actual creation rather than that of the second or third thoughts. There is a very loud amusement <laughs> park right in front of my present logic. <laughs> and you're like, what? what? And then like he doesn't mention it again. Like two pages later, he's describing something else. He's talking about uh forming together with the shorter flanks twin wings of 500 verses each and damn that music <laughs> and you're just like oh this person is you know the intrusion of the real world that this person is trying to write this academic you know scholarly article I just I was like immediately I was so on board I'm like oh this is and, and that's what he does Nabokov does that so well like his control of voice and like tone it's just it's it's insane like i don't think there's yeah like you're saying there's only like five people that have ever lived that have achieved this this level of control and it actually seems like he was having
3: fun
2: you know yes it's hysterical when you read lolita that doesn't necessarily feel like fun but this is like i'm gonna write about all the things i'm really interested in and i'm going to skewer them but also at the same time i'm going to ask profound questions about the nature of what it is to be a human
1: so (laughs) let me jump in with a footnote that i really loved um so occasionally the commentary it's mostly story which is great but occasionally it, it is real footnotes and commentary but it's like off and i really love this one um so line 426 uh (laughs) All right. Okay. So it says the references, of course, to Robert Frost, born 1874. Mm -hmm. And then he like talks about it for a second. Then he says, Frost is the author of one of the greatest short poems in the English language, a poem that every American boy knows by heart about the wintry woods and the dreary dusk and the little horse bells of gentle remonstration in the dull darkening air and that prodigious and poignant end. Two closing lines, identical in every syllable, but one personal and physical, and the other metaphysical and universal. I dare not quote from memory, lest I displace one small precious word. So he, like, (laughs) doesn't do the reference. It's so funny. It's like he's saying, it's like this guy's free handwriting. It's these footnotes and this index. It's so funny.
2: There's there's also quite a bit. uh, So in the poem, there's a little bit about... uh, TV essentially replacing your own thoughts, and it's really sort of prescient <laughs> For what would come and I mean at the time there were like three channels and one of them was snow um, So I, I found that really interesting um, one thing that we haven't really talked about is there's this undercurrent of um, of homosexuality in the narrator that's never dressed uh, Directly but it also seems to be part of the rage that he is uh, encapsulated by.
0: Well, yeah, well, it builds perfectly, too, because you're like, what are these references adding up to? And then you realize that, like, the the shitty breakup he had with, like, his roommate right. probably had something to do with that. And, like, you start piecing it together. You're like, oh, right. And, right. you know, potentially that he's in love with Shade because he's right. such, he's, you know, he's stalking the guy. Like, that's what I love. It's like, pretty yeah. quickly, you learn that he was, like, a neighbor and he calls himself, like, shade's best friend who you know he got the rights to the poem and then you were like slowly realizing like oh this guy moved next to shade and stalked him because he was obsessed with his writing and and i love that idea i mean again like the way that the way that the critic who's obsessed with the work of a of an author um is sort of like a stalker, you know, like even if they don't know them in real life, like the very act of inserting yourself as the only authority who can like really interpret the meaning of a poem, for instance. Right. And like the, the, the taking the the stand that like, I'm going to write the, the definitive, interpretation of this work in my footnotes like it is kind of like being a, a, a stalkerly neighbor to the author right yeah. like it, 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 that I love that relationship like the way that that Nabokov is able to, to make a story out of a, a literary process like the process of reading and the process of being a critic and 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 sort of highlight the weirdness of that and and like the intimacy of it and the way that you you do kind of invade somebody's life when you read their work and and their their intimate thoughts and and, and they're expressing themselves and and then you kind of want an ownership over that and you want an authority if you're a critic um, or even if you're a reader, you know you bring your own baggage and you bring your own things and interpretations and like you're putting just as much into the text often as you are taking out of it. Um, so I just loved that you know as a basic, conceit of, of this structure like that that's built into it and then that he makes that so funny and entertaining and, and tragic it's uh it's it's brilliant satire it's it's satire of like the literary process right. basically it's it's like it's it's, it's i i yeah I've, i mean foster wallace like comes close to this in theory but i don't feel like he he ever achieves this Level of entertainment and actual storytelling. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like, like I think w- in his essays w- w- he does. Maybe oh, his less, essays are amazing, yes. so but so fiction. But in his fiction, yeah, I, I guess it's the. Um, it's like it's one thing to be like super clever and intelligent and deconstructive in your approach to literature. Um, it's another thing to to pull it all together the way that this book does. Yeah, uh, you know where it's like it actually does become a pretty straightforward narrative plot story yeah. with basic characters by the end and the fact that it arrives there blew my mind like yeah. when i because i really thought it was just going to be this digressive deconstruction of literature and ha, ha ha and then the fact that it, like it actually arrived somewhere even weirder than that and, and tied it all together and it is a novel like yeah. you can't it's call this anything sure other than a yeah. novel
2: that's genius you know what, i mean that is did, did any of you go and look at the um the criticism of it when it came out i didn't I'm no. sort of curious, like what what was the New York Times saying about Pale Fire?
1: Well, I did... I, I mean, go ahead, right,
0: I was I, I just I just did a little you know Wikipedia and googling and stuff, and it was mixed. It was definitely mixed, yeah. but people have obsessive pet theories about this book, which oh, I find I'm sure fascinating. Because yes. and, and a couple of them, I was like, oh, that's actually a really good theory, uh, which we can get into if we want to move into spoiler land uh but there are a couple like really like apparently there's a lot written about this book mm-hmm. this is like a favorite book for people to write essays about or to have opinions on or theories about because it's just and, another
1: layer how fun is that yeah, like you're right. participating exactly. in the book by having a theory go on sorry yep. to interrupt
0: no and apparently um Nabokov himself confirmed one of the theories like if you look on wikipedia like there, there's there's one of the out, outlandish theories he's like yeah and he's like given extra information about
2: the story um uh which we can get into but i don't know Just if we were like ready spoiler-ly. <laughs> so i'm going to read the last paragraph of the new york times review of pale fire so which should reveal everything we need to know Pale fire is a curiosity into which it is agreeable to dip rather than a book which can be read straight through with pleasure. Huh. Nothing can uh, obliterate the fact that Mr. Nabokov is a keen intelligence, a restless and inquisitive mind, and a very personal style that constantly defeats his pretense of being a mere kimboat. So this is interesting. Uh You know, this is, this is like, oh, you have, he's equating the author with, the character. It is refreshing, too, that he has made no attempt to repeat any of the patterns that have brought him success in the past. Much of the detail in this book can be paralleled in earlier novels. For instance, his account of Professor Hurley, who is set up as an inadequate first biographer of John Shade, is very much the same as his account of Mr. Goodman, the inadequate first biographer of Sebastian Knight. But Pale Fire sets a course all its own. It is one more proof of Mr. Nabokov's rare vitality. Unluckily, it is not much more than that. Hmm. Hmm. You know the other weird thing, just to just to say, how weird is it is like the there were people that lived in the time when Nabokov was alive and were reviewing his books.
3: Yeah, he, <laughs> like like, it's like pretty that, recent.
2: That, that seems weird. Yeah, it's like yeah. sixty years ago. Um, he yeah. also says it's not a bad poem. <laughs> the reviewer says
1: <laughs> I'd agree with that I think I think in a second we should move into like we should have a, a wall coming down between non-spoiler and spoiler because we got it yeah, okay. but I yeah, think you know like the David Foster Wallace comparisons are interesting and the, the difference to me is that David Foster Wallace like he's he's nakedly like ambitious and like I'm mm-hmm. doing something huge and Nabokov is pulling off something really huge while looking like he's just fucking around. Like, that's yeah. cool. <laughs> that's really cool. And of course, I'm sure it's a humongous, crazy amount of work. Um, but it seems like he's like, I agree with that review and that it's like, oh, yeah, I, I did a, a perfect you know, road trip novel. I did a perfect, uh you know, memoir. Okay, here, here's this. Here's this postmodern thing. How about this? Um, and they're all equally good. That's uh, insane. It's creepy. Mm-hmm.
2: All right, so listeners, if you do not want to know the dark truth behind Pale Fire, um, now's the time to stop listening. Go listen to Reply All by Gimlet Media. There's a good episode about finding a guy who lives who leaves funny reviews of um, stores in Santa Fe, and in every picture he puts a spaceship. They find him on the current episode of Reply All.
1: Wow, great! great. I just—I to promote <laughs> I <will>. another podcast.
2: <laughs> I, just, I, I, heard, I listened to it last night. was very interesting. Let's see if Reply All will promote. I couldn't us in sleep. Response. it was like two o'clock in the morning. I was like, "Oh, listen to Reply All." I believe. All right, it's so post spoiler discussion. We are in spoiler land,
0: <laughs> and it 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 turns out that our unreliable narrator is Kinboat is actually the exiled king of Zembla. Dun, 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 dun. Uh, dun, dun,
1: dun. So, wait. And right. the assassin, ah.
0: greatest who is tracking him down, catches up with him right out front of John Shade's house with John Shade and accidentally shoots John Shade. Because he's the terrible assassin,
2: Kin- a bungling assassin. Right.
0: Yeah. Right. Um, and so that is how Shade died. And because Shade's wife thought that Kinboat had stepped in front of the bullet or tried to stop the bullet. She gave him the rights to publish this poem and this whole novel is, or this whole writing the commentary on the poetry is an opportunity for our narrator to explain himself and tell his story. Um, so it finally it actually kind of makes sense of yeah. all of the meta stuff that's been going on, which is just incredible. Um, and I thought uh, funny and wrapped it all up in a really, really, nice way that, that 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 made it more than just a uh, clever exercise
2: well so, you had to know early on that kimbo was king charles
0: yeah i was pretty slow
2: wow <laughs> uh, roger strong not a fast learner really slow <laughs> <laughs> i figured it out pretty pretty uh i don't know maybe 150 pages in
3: so here because
1: we go. Because otherwise page there's not a reason to tell the story. Oh yeah, I was super late. So this is this is where it gets really interesting and weird, right? So like if I put on my Skidmore College English major hat, uh, <laughs> the evidence is quite early, very very early, but um I put big fat stars around <laughs> page 122. So he's, yeah. we're in the history but now it's getting really personal. Like there's mm-hmm. no possible way for anyone to know. So the king sighed and began to undress. His camp bed and a bed table had been placed facing the window in the northeast corner. And it just goes on and on like that. Like it's clearly in scene, like so deep in scene. So where I get fucked up is I'm confident. I'm like, he's the king. Great. And there's a lot of really, if you do know this, If you do pick up on this and Ryder, you should go back. Like all of these um, passages about like uh, jumping out of planes and disguises, like Mm -hmm. they all become more fun and rich when you realize he's like very strangely talking about himself. Um, But there's that same close reading with the assassin. Mm-hmm. so what's going on there you know like is he are these stories invented are there multiple personalities going on yep. is this mm-hmm. all, it's all
0: made up you know that's 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 like one of the leading theories that I totally buy because there's that weird botkin character yep mm-hmm. who's who's like going the Russian guy who's going crazy the other professor is going crazy and it's, I think the idea is that he wrote this entire thing that he invented zembla invented all of these characters
2: uh because he murdered shade or well but we know know that there's a guy that's oh so you're saying that even the story that we're reading is someone else's story that someone else has written this story
0: there's another botkin is right that there's another guy who was at the you know in school because you remember you hear those references to him going insane and like Mm -hmm. saying weird things there's like three or four like very cl- clear references to this colleague of theirs who went insane. Right. And I mean, his name is close enough. It's like, Oh, there's all these reasons to believe. I don't know. That, that was one of the theories online. The one I saw, I was like, Oh yeah, that totally makes sense. Like, um, it's, it's actually about a guy just going insane and being obsessed with shit. John shade and having shot him and then trying to rationalize it or explain it away or tell a whole story around it. Um, well, I, you
2: know. I go by uh, a theory that I first learned about in the movie contact. Uh, which is Occam's razor, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. where it's like the most likely thing is not that the most likely thing is this obsessed guy who is trying to justify his own madness has written this thing because the the level of um specificity about himself as it relates to these things like i mean it, it it's such a suspension of disbelief that you would have to have as a right like to create that as a writer to be like okay what i really want is for readers to think a third person has written this entire book about these entire things that is not me also like that's it just seems like nabokov might have been like a smart interesting dude but was he thinking Like, was he playing nine-dimensional chess as he wrote? No, maybe he was. I don't know. Of
1: anybody. I think he kind of wanted it to be...
2: He wanted it to allow for that possibility. Like,
0: whether he... I think it's maybe in the writing of it, he was like, oh, I should do this. And just sort of introduce the idea of insanity and this other character. And then I might as well make it that there's a reading of this whole book that is... That it's inside the mind of that character. You know, I mean, I think that there's... I definitely think he was playing with as many different things as possible. Like... The same way that James Joyce does that shit, you know? It's like, these are such genius writers who can do whatever they want, and at a certain point, they start doing whatever they want And, and leaving enough open for, you know, readers to add to. I mean, he obviously wanted... He obviously likes the idea that readers add to the book that they're reading, right? I mean, that is encoded within the book itself. Right. So the act that people, the fact that he would leave trap doors and little jokes and in references to make you want to reread the book and add in your own interpretation is totally on point. Like that is actually the, the very point of this book. So I think he did, like, I th- you know, I guess apparently he said publicly like, oh, the narrator committed suicide after that and
2: and you think about it it afterwards but
0: when you think about it remember the whole suicide passage that is so random that is so good it's like one of the best parts of the book when he's talking when he's writing about the power of suicide and when to do it and how to do it and it was i remember being like this is really weird this feels like this is inserted for a Mm -hmm. reason and it's really well written and cool and so it's like oh right like so i don't know i think he's He's just one of those genius
3: writers who was trying see, to do the, it all.
2: This is the danger, right, of, of asking someone what really happens at the end. It's like why David Chase has been so smart not to say what happens at the end of The Sopranos. Like, hey, man, if I tell you it devalues everything that's come before it, the The joy of reading this is the not knowing, you know, mm-hmm. um, it's this it's this thing that we're doing right now for an hour Um after a day of watching American democracy crumble in front of our very eyes. <laughs> um, if you guys watch T V today, I, oh, yeah. yep. um, I do watch TV. I read I
0: I I I check obsessively on the I mean I'm <coughs> definitely in the like oh, New York Times yeah. oh, Washington Post. Like every hour I need to like Yeah de- it's it's just a de- sick de- delete addiction. them from
2: my phone because it doesn't help. Um <sighs> but like this this thing like to have nabokov be like oh yeah he kills himself at the end like no no after you write this thing you don't get to tell us what the dot 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 is that belongs to us now um yeah,
1: yeah. and it's so funny i think i said this recently on the podcast but it's like we get so into it as readers we forget like there's no answer these people aren't real right. <laughs> you know what i mean <laughs> like it's not he can say whatever he wants but it's not part of the text. Like, I'm one of those readers. I'm like the text is text. And, right. yeah. you know, it. you yep. it exists in the real world only as like an imaginative idea. And how cool is that? So, like, there is no what really happened. And I Mm-mm. brought up Harry Potter before because J.K. Rowling's always doing this. And it's like people act like. There's an actual alternate universe where, like, Harry Potter is doing something and pissed at J.K. Rowling that she won't tell us what he's doing. It's not, it's not what literature is or is for. Like, we're not in a multiverse. I don't know. Yeah, and,
2: and you're not nine. Like, you, you understand when the book is over with that the picture in your mind it stops.
1: But I agree with you, Todd, that, like, you know, I love that Sopranos ending. I love anything that has this strange open feel to it at the end, which is actually why I love creative nonfiction is because it's very aggressive on these points, you know, like fiction. You can be like, it's all fictional. Like I just did. But creative nonfiction puts that same open air into real events, which I just love. So people need to get cool with subtlety.
2: Do you guys remember that first, uh, did you guys read the first Tana French novel? Yeah, Into in the, the, the woods? woods. Yeah. Yeah, where they don't solve the crime at the end of the book. Yeah. And like at first I was super frustrated and then I was like, but that's actually what happens yep. a lot of times is they don't solve the crime. Um, and it became satisfying in a different kind of way. Like real, the the real world is messy and doesn't come with a bow at the end of it. Um, and so I appreciate that in that book. And then this book, I appreciate the not knowing the full story of anything because it is also such a broad satire of the entire, I mean, it's a, it's, it's actually not a satire. It's a parody. Um, and I think in the, the goal of parody is to make you question the things that you find intellectually stimulating a lot of times. Mm-hmm. And, and so this book is mocking us for being, um, people with advanced degrees in literature and <laughs> who read books and spend a lot of time talking about them. Nabokov is like, uh, you as a punk writer, strong, you as totally. a punk, Anna Klumsky, <laughs> you as a punk, Ray Romano, <laughs> but he still
0: manages. Yeah, he is, but he still manages to, um, uh, to be kind of romantic about writing mm-hmm. and yeah. to make you love. There's this, I mean I think my favorite passage is is near the end of the book right when he's um when he finally gets the poem physically right. <laughs> from Shade and he's carrying it and they're walking back to the house and we know that Shade is about to die and he has this passage about reading and imagining or just just recognizing the power of of the written word. We are absurdly accustomed to the miracle of a few written signs being able to contain immortal imagery, involutions of thought, new worlds with live people speaking, weeping, laughing. We take it for granted so simply that in a sense, by the very act of brutish routine acceptance, we undo the work of the ages, the history of the gradual elaboration of poetical description and construction from the treeman to Browning, from the caveman to Keats. Uh, just like Mm -hmm. I was like are you fucking kidding me like you just brought it home man like yes because that's what this whole book is done like it's like made me realize how crazy reading and writing is and made me appreciate all that again even though I've been doing it my entire life obsessing over it writing Mm -hmm. you know writing myself reading myself making a podcast about those things like so to, to, to have a book like just smack me in the face with that really basic idea to just be like writing is powerful. Mm-hmm. Like that's, you know, it's like it's so powerful and it's so beautiful. And it's like it's it's w- like what I live for. You know, it's it's just one of those things. yeah, I, I, oh.
2: yeah it's a, It turns out Vlad was pretty good. <laughs> I, you know, I read Lita the Leda before this. I've and only so ever read the like, Leda two, and yeah, in some of so now I'm essays. gonna
0: read everything. I'm like, all right, that's it. Like, I gotta, you know, I gotta read everything.
2: So, he studied French and Russian literature, and that seems good. Lived in Berlin and Paris,
1: wrote in English, spoke,
2: wrote in English, lived in Montreal, in, then lived in Switzerland until he died in 1977. We were alive, or I was alive when he died. I didn't, like, he, no one even told me, no one called.
3: I missed him by two years. He
2: died the same year Elvis did What does that mean hmm. I don't know if it's connected <laughs> Probably not
1: <laughs> Maybe they're both just in your mind Todd.
2: He also died the same year My mom got like her third divorce So there we go
1: Way to make All it about you literature, man. <laughs>
2: All ties together
0: Literary Disco is produced and edited by Justin Alvarez for Lit Hub Radio. You can reach out to us directly on Twitter, at Literary Disco. Happy reading, everybody. Thanks for
3: listening.